Welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is sponsored by Just Thrive Probiotics. I found this company when searching for the most research-backed and effective probiotic available, and I was blown away at the difference I found in their products. They offer two cornerstone products that are both clinically studied and highly effective. The first is their probiotic, which has been studied to help with leaky gut and to survive up to 1,000 times as much as other probiotics or as the beneficial organisms in something like Greek yogurt, for instance. The difference is their spore-based strains work completely differently than other types of probiotics. Their probiotic is vegan, dairy-free, histamine-free, non-GMO, and is made without soy, dairy, sugar, salt, corn, tree nuts, or gluten. So it's safe for practically everyone. I even sprinkle it in my kids' food or bake it into products because it can survive at really high temperatures. Their probiotic contains a patented strain called Bacillus indicus HU36, which produces antioxidants in the digestive system where they can be easily absorbed by the body. Their other product is a K2-7, and this is a nutrient you may have heard of. It's known as Activator X, a super nutrient that Weston A. Price, a dentist known primarily for his theories on the relationship between nutrition, good health, bone development, and oral health. He found that this is prevalent in foods in the healthiest communities in the world. The K2 from Just Thrive is the only pharmaceutical grade, all natural supplement with published safety studies. Like the probiotic, it is also gluten, dairy, soy, nut, and GMO free, and best are both taken with food. So I keep both on my kitchen table. Here's a tip too. My dad has trouble remembering to take supplements. So he actually taped these to his pepper shaker because he uses that at practically every meal. And now they're on his daily supplement list as well. You can check out all their products and learn more by going to thriveprobiotic.com forward slash wellnessmama and using the code wellnessmama15 to save 15%. So again, that's Thrive Probiotic, T-H-R-I-V-E, P-R-O-B-I-O-T-I-C.com forward slash wellnessmama and the code wellnessmama15 to save 15%. This podcast is brought to you by the best CBD I have ever tried and the one that I feel is truly the best out there. It's called Ojai Energetics, spelt O-J-A-I, Energetics, and here's why it's awesome. First of all, it is over 20 times more absorbable than most CBD, which makes it an incredible value. Over 99% of Ojai CBD gets where it needs to go in your body because of their patented colloidal technology, which is not liposomal like 90% of the CBD on the market. And in fact, 90% of the CBD in these liposomal oils don't even make it past the gut and liver and into the blood. This is called the first pass effect. Then 90% of the CBD that does make it through isn't in the right form to be available to the cells that need it. Ojai solves this problem with their colloidal system. I was skeptical and I have to tell you the first time I tried it, I felt a noticeable, like very noticeable effect in about 15 seconds, which is so much faster than the 20 to 30 minutes with other brands I've used. So now whenever I feel any stress or anxiety or have trouble sleeping, I use it and solve that problem in under 20 seconds. Their CBD is derived from completely organic ingredients and it's batch tested by third-party vendors, which is important for heavy metals, VOCs, pesticides, herbicides, microbes, and to verify the content of terpenes and cannabinoids. Because this version absorbs faster, you can also know if you're getting the right dose because taking too much CBD is not a good thing either. Here's how. Because Ojai works so rapidly, it causes your body's cannabinoid receptors in the tongue to modulate. 
big words, but what this means is that the CBD will taste bitter when your body needs more CBD, but will change to sweet when you've had enough. So to test it, all you have to do is take only a quarter of a dropper, wait 30 seconds, and then feel on your tongue if you taste bitter or sweet. If it tastes bitter, you just repeat until you get a sweet, almost honey-like taste. Ojai is also a certified B Corp, which means they operate their servers off of wind power. They use completely recyclable packaging. They work to build direct relationships with the farmers who grow the ingredients they use, which ensures fair trade wages, and they support regenerative farming practices. Find out more about them and their mission and get a special gift with your order by going to ohaienergetics.com forward slash wellness mama. So again, O-J-A-I energetics.com forward slash wellness mama. Hello and welcome to the wellness mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and I'm here today with one of my favorite people in the world, Dr. Isabella Wentz, PharmD from thyroidpharmacist.com. She is a pioneering expert in lifestyle interventions for treating Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which I have. She was also diagnosed at age 27 and she drew on years of research and has worked with thousands of patients plus her own experience to create her number one New York Times bestseller, Hashimoto's Protocol. I know firsthand that she's so passionate about helping others with Hashimoto's and she does help hundreds and thousands every year. Um, She also, as a side note, loves small fluffy dogs, yoga, hiking, fashion, and throwing out random witty sayings whenever she can get away with it, which is often because she's very good at it. She just wrote a new book called Hashimoto's Food Pharmacology, Nutrition Protocols and Healing Recipes to Take Charge of Your Thyroid Health, and it's awesome. It's a step-by-step guide for creating healthy habits and easy, delicious recipes to revamp the immune system. And she has in there a proven nutritional plan that's Hashimoto's safe, plus a bunch of recipes and meal plans. You guys have to check it out. We'll talk about it a little bit today, but Isabella, welcome and thanks for being here. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. It's always so great to connect with you. Oh, likewise. I could talk to you all day. Um, To get started, I'd love if we could just establish some base terms. I think most people are familiar with the term by now, but in case there is anyone who isn't, can you just give us a primer on what Hashimoto's thyroiditis is and why you think it's so prevalent right now? Wow. So Hashimoto's is the most common autoimmune condition in uh, in the world and definitely in the United States. It's one of those um, conditions that sounds really exotic, but it's actually very, very common. So as many as 20% of us might have it. What it is, is basically the immune system starts to recognize the thyroid gland as a foreign invader, starts to attack the thyroid gland, which eventually results in us not making enough thyroid hormone. And so Hashimoto's is the leading cause of hypothyroidism or a sluggish thyroidism, some people might say, and it's the leading cause why people get prescribed the medication Synthroid. Um, what's, I think, an always an interest, interesting little tidbit uh, as, as a pharmacist that Synthroid is, is, has been in the top-selling drug category for the last five years usually top top one, top two, or top three. So this is a very, very common condition, and many of us are affected. Some of us might not even know it. Wow. I know that was me for years, and I'd love to hear a little bit, a bit about your story as well, as, as along with what are some of the symptoms that people can look for? Because I know in my own experience, I had definitely some of the symptoms that lined up with the classic hypothyroidism, but then I had some other random symptoms and things were kind of across the board. So um, what would someone look for to know if they might be struggling with this? Some of the most common symptoms that people are going to have are going to be fatigue, 
There are going to be challenges with weight. A lot of times people will have weight gain. Some people might have weight loss that's not welcome as well, though. Um, and then we're going to have issues with, with, I would say, the brain. So this might be something like brain fog. This might be something like anxiety or even depression. Any of those uh, symptoms would signal that somebody had an issue with their thyroid. For a, wa- a lot of women, what's interesting, it's actually something quite... I guess, you know, I laugh at to say it, it's a bit superficial because this was one of the first symptoms for me was hair loss, where I was in my 20s and I just thought, okay, maybe being tired is normal, maybe gaining weight is normal, but why am I losing so much hair? This just should not be happening. So loss of hair, as well as a loss of the eyebrows, dry skin, these are some of the big telltale signs that you might have a thyroid condition. And, and I know for a lot of women, this is going to be the very first thing that we might notice. Um, and sometimes I'll laugh because it, it'll be the hairdressers that quote unquote diagnose us instead of our doctors. That is funny. Yeah. With, with me, with my story is I was, I was chronically fatigued for almost a decade. So I would, I would basically go to work in the mornings, I drag myself out of bed, and I'd come home and I'd be exhausted. And then I would fall asleep around 9pm. And basically, I would sleep for anywhere from 10 to 12 hours and still feel exhausted every day. And then I went on to have more symptoms like irritable bowel syndrome, carpal tunnel syndrome, I had hair loss, I had panic attacks. Um, I had cold intolerance, which is another cardinal symptom where I was wearing two sweaters in Southern California. And all of these things were just sort of happening. I felt like I wasn't, quote unquote, seriously sick. All the doctors were saying everything was normal, but yet I felt like my body was breaking itself apart. This was like, as I mentioned in my 20s, a lot of times people might get diagnosed when they're a bit older, usually um, after they have babies or, or even during perimenopause, pregnancy, puberty, and perimenopause are some of the most common times when women get diagnosed. And so I I was just walking around not knowing what was going on. I was very forgetful. And um, finally, I got some testing done that revealed I had Hashimoto's. And at that point, I decided to see if there was anything I can do to get myself better. I started on medications, which was great. As a pharmacist, I thought they would be you know, the, the thing that cured me and, and would be the one answer, the one solution. But unfortunately, the medications um, helped me feel a little bit better. I went from sleeping 11 hours to like 10 hours a night. So that was a huge improvement for me. But at the same time, I wanted to figure out if there was anything I can do to get myself to feel better as well as potentially figure out what was causing or exacerbating the condition. And, and that's kind of how I became a, a Hashimoto's expert slash human guinea pig was trying to find my own health with um, with the root cause approach and trying to figure out what my triggers were and if there were lifestyle changes that I could utilize to make myself better. I know your work has been so helpful to me and to so many others. What are some of the common triggers that you see um, that can that just are really prevalent in Hashimoto's? Some of the biggest triggers are going to be food sensitivities. They're going to be nutrient deficiencies. They're going to be um, impaired ability to handle stress, impaired ability to handle toxins. Um, a lot of times we're, we might also see things like chronic infections as well as um, issues with gut. So these might, might be things like um, impaired digestion, a lack of digestive enzymes, as well as intestinal permeability or a leaky gut. And we could go into a little bit more details on all those if you'd like. 
Yeah, I'd love to specifically talk a little bit about the gut connection because I know that was a key for me is realizing not just only like what I ate was so, so important, but like my gut health in general really impacted my thyroid. So can you talk about that connection? Wow. Yeah. So what's kind of interesting is that the gut and thyroid, they, they share the same fetal origin. So, um, they, they sort of develop all together and a lot of the things we do that improve our gut health are going to also improve the health of our thyroid gland. We're looking at some of the research, um, on autoimmune disease in general, which states that basically every single person with an autoimmune condition is going to have three things present. And those are going to be the genetic predisposition, some sort of a trigger that initiated or perpetuated the condition, and then intestinal permeability or a leaky gut. When we have this leaky gut, um, our immune system doesn't function properly, and we don't digest our foods properly. And we, our body actually make antibodies against the foods that we're eating on a common basis. It can make antibodies against things that are normally present in our physiology. And so what we'll see a lot of times is a person will have multiple food sensitivities when they have Hashimoto's. There's one particular antibody known as IgG, where people will have antibodies to their thyroid and to the foods that they're eating with Hashimoto's. And a lot of times, whatever foods they're eating that are IgG reactive will cause a reaction for them within their thyroid as well. Some of the other things we see are going to be commonly, very commonly are going to be nutrient or digestive enzyme deficiencies specifically in digestive enzymes that that break down fats and proteins. Uh, this is going to be very commonly seen in people with Hashimoto's, and that kind of contributes to the vicious cycle of poor, di- poor digestion, and then we're not extracting nutrients from our foods properly. Then we're also going to be, um, I already alluded to that, we're going to have nutrient deficiencies, and a lot of these nutrients are going to be required for proper thyroid function as well as for proper gut function. And another, another big thing is, is going to be an imbalance of the gut flora. So people with Hashimoto's, about half of them might have a condition known as SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, where they have too much of bacteria in one part of their intestines. They might have an imbalance of good bacteria versus bad bacteria in their gut that can perpetuate the autoimmunity, the leaky gut. And in some cases, they might even have different types of infections within their gut parasitic infections, they sound really rare and exotic living in the United States. Unfortunately, they're very, very common. I've been testing the gut health of people with thyroid issues for many, many years. And we'll tell you that majority of them will have some sort of a gut infection. That is if they don't improve on on just nutritional protocols alone. Yeah, that, I definitely noticed that in my experience. And it was a, not an overnight process for sure. I think any of us who are in this know that Hashimoto's is an ongoing journey, not just a quick fix. And I love that you really address that so deeply in your um, Hashimoto's protocol and also in your new book, which I want to talk about a little bit because your first book, Hashimoto's Protocol, your previous book is a 90-day plan for reversing symptoms and working with the root cause. And the new book I thought was so fascinating because it's a cookbook in a way. It has a lot of recipes, but it's so much more than that because Hashimoto's Food Pharmacology basically talks about using food as medicine in the same way that you could use pharmaceuticals to change your biology and how powerful that can be. So I'd love to hear how you came up with this idea and what that concept looks like. Sure. So when I was in pharmacy school, I learned about how tiny substances can impact our our physiology. 
And at first, I, I mean, I thought it was just drugs, right? I thought like if food could do this, then I would have surely learned about it. And even things like lactose intolerance, I was, I was almost skeptical of them. I was like, oh, well, it's just a tiny bit of lactose. What can it really do? Where really food can be a very powerful ally to our healing. Food, medicine, pharmaceuticals, herbs, all of these different um, substances, they send tiny messages to our body, right? And it'll give our body messages to, for example, to our gut, it'll say, seal yourself, right? And keep all this stuff in or make yourself leaky. And, and this can be just on a day-to-day basis messages that we get. Now, a lot of times people in the modern world, they expect that one pharmaceutical will be their cure-all, right? And this, this is something that I expected. I thought I'll just take thyroid medications and everything will be fixed, right? But Hashimoto's is more than just a thyroid condition. It's a whole body condition. And so we need a lot of the, these positive healing messages to be sent to our bodies to tell our bodies that, it's, that they're safe and that it's time to heal. You know, one of the things that can be particularly problematic for people with Hashimoto's is gluten. So whenever we eat gluten, this can cross-react with our thyroid. And so our body will say, gluten is a foreign invader, we're going to attack it. And then there's a part of the thyroid gland that looks like gluten as well, we're going to attack that. And so every time we're eating that, that's sending a negative message to our body saying, hey, let's launch an attack against the thyroid gland. That said, there's also positive substances. And whenever we take those in, the body gets messages of, hey, this is great. We have enough, you know, let's say we have enough L-glutamine. That means we can start repairing things. Let's start repairing the gut. Let's start repairing the thyroid gland. And this is what the food pharmacology was based on is figuring out which foods are going to be adding to our overall health and which foods are going to be taking away from it. And I did go a little bit deeper with that where I wanted to look at what were the most common reasons why people fail with diet. I know a lot of times, you know, Katie, you and I are in the nutrition world and it's so controversial because one person will say like, this is the best diet in the whole entire world. And then another person will say, I almost died on that diet or this, I felt horrible. And, and there's, there are these nutrition wars going about. And one of the really big reasons, in my opinion, in my experience, why people fail on certain diets is because they are either A, deficient in nutrients. So anytime we take on a restrictive diet and anytime we have gut issues, we're going to be deficient in, in nutrients, whether we're not extracting them from our foods properly, or perhaps they're just not present in our food. One example would be the vegan diet when we, I think a lot of people are familiar with that, where it just doesn't contain B12, right? And so what we need to do is supplement with B12 when we're on this type of diet. Um, same goes for, for autoimmune diets, paleo diets, um, for people with thyroid conditions. We're not going to be extracting nutrients properly. So one of the big things I do is I talk about which nutrients you need to get on board when you're eating a healthy diet to complement yourself. And the other thing I also talk about is digestive enzymes. We know research shows that people with thyroid conditions, having an underactive thyroid alone is going to cause a depletion in various digestive enzymes. And also, potentially the nutrition protocols that we're eating, the gut infections that we have on board, all the imbalances are going to contribute as well. And so another big part I talk about is digestive enzymes, which ones should you utilize when you have a thyroid condition? And how do you know which ones you need? And how do you know how to take them? And that really, to me, is a whole picture of, of nutrition, a whole picture of the food pharmacology is trying to figure out how do we best serve our bodies, um, rather than just 
trying a diet that maybe worked perfectly for somebody else and our unique bodies, we're tailoring this approach to ourselves. I love that you brought that up because that's something that's been on my mind so much recently and I've become much less uh, dogmatic in my own work, in my own writing, because I've realized I think you can learn a lot from almost any method. And I think at the end of the day, so many of us have found what works so well for us. And it does, it works great for us, but it may not work for everyone else. I think um, the future of health is very much going to be in personalization and variation. And I feel like that's what you have really conquered in this book is giving people the tools to figure that out. Um, as a quick follow-up, I'd love to know just a kind of overview of what are some of the nutrients that those with Hashimoto's need to be really cognizant of making sure we're getting enough of through diet and supplements. One of the really big ones is going to be vitamin D. Um, and this is going to be challenging to get through diet. A lot of times what I recommend is going to on a beach vacation, whatever possible, right? Um, but that's not always possible for everybody. So we can take a supplement, vitamin D as a supplement, anywhere from 5,000 to 10,000. I use maybe as much as we need in the wintertime. I always recommend testing for it first before we supplement and then testing three months later because vitamin D is something that can build up into the body. Um, another big thing is going to be selenium. Selenium is going to be commonly deficient in thyroid conditions. It's not going to be very commonly found in our soils. A, a food that's rich in selenium is Brazil nuts. However, depending on what region of the world they came from, some of them might have not enough selenium to meet our daily needs, and some of them might have too much where it could even become borderline toxic. So a lot of times I'll recommend a selenium supplement. Around 200 micrograms per day of selenium methionine has been clinically shown to reduce thyroid antibodies. So these are the markers of the attack on the thyroid. The more we have, the more aggressive the attack is. Um, and they've also shown to reduce anxiety and hair loss in people with thyroid conditions. Another one that I commonly see that not a lot of people talk about is thiamine. This is vitamin B1. And interestingly, this is going to be deficient in gluten-free and grain-free diets. This is something that can cause fatigue, low blood pressure, adrenal issues, carbohydrate intolerance. It could cause pain in the body. And what I found is right around 600 milligrams per day seems to be the magic dose for most people with thyroid conditions to help restore their fatigue levels. What's been amazing, I've had people who have reached out to me that were on disability because of their, you know, serious fatigue levels, and they've started taking um, thiamine within three days, they'll start getting more energy. And within a couple of weeks to a few months, they'll be able to go back into the real world and start working again. Um, this is not generally something you can necessarily test for on a lab test, but it is something that is water soluble and safe. So you can, you can purchase the supplement and try it for yourself and see if it works about three to five days, you'll, you'll be able to tell the difference. Magnesium is another common nutrient that's going to be deficient. Some of the common signs and symptoms are going to be headaches, constipation, pain, muscle cramps, um, period cramps are a really big kind of symptom that tells us we might have a magnesium deficiency, anxiety, as well as reflux. Interestingly, research has shown that taking a magnesium supplement not right away, but over the course of a few years can normalize the appearance of a thyroid gland on a thyroid ultrasound. So, so it does contribute to some of that, some of our body's own healing. The other, the other one that I commonly recommend, and this is going to be tested, is going to be ferritin. This is the iron storage protein. 
This is very commonly going to be deficient in people with thyroid conditions. Some of the symptoms we're going to see are going to be fatigue, hair loss, breathlessness, anemia, mood swings, restless leg syndrome, and insomnia are also going to be common not no, or common with, with this deficiency, but not a lot of people are aware of that. And this is something we're going to see on a test. So we need to request ferritin specifically. We don't want to just take iron willy-nilly because it can it can build up in the body and can be toxic. And then the last one, and I already mentioned this was B12. So this is, we know that this is going to be deficient on a vegan diet, sometimes on a vegetarian diet. And generally, we think that if we're paleo or gluten-free, that we would not, might not be deficient in this. However, there's also a condition that causes us to be deficient in B12 because our body's not absorbing it properly. Um, this could be also caused by something like SIBO or H. pylori. So a lot of times I'll recommend testing for B12. And some of the deficiency signs are going to be fatigue, depression, neurological issues, tingling, extremities, brain fog, nerve damage, um, anemia, seizures can also be like a very advanced symptom of that. Um, so these are some of the, I, I like to call the, the big six of nutrient deficiencies that I recommend. And there's, there's also other ones that I, I talk about in the book, like zinc, omega-3s, folate, um, B vitamins, and vitamin C. That was a super comprehensive analysis. Thank you. And so back to the food side a little bit. Um, I think a lot of us now are aware that you know, normal American diet is not good for us. And especially those of us with a health condition realize or starting to realize that we can use food to benefit our bodies. But even in those cases, I feel like I hear from so many people where changing eating habits can be really difficult. Like even if we know it's going to really be beneficial for us, it's hard to make those changes and it's hard to resist the call of like doughy bread or, you know, some processed food that we have a tie to. So I'm curious if you have any tools for helping people overcome that part of the challenge. Sometimes it seems like that's the hardest part. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like we get in our own ways or sometimes we have people in our lives that get in our ways. And a lot of it is um, creating new habits. So going through and making it super easy on yourself to eat this way. And so that that's a big part of food pharmacology is, is, you know, how do we really make it simple for people so that it just becomes natural, it becomes a habit, it becomes easier to eat this way than it than it does to eat um, the way that we used to eat. It does take some time, it does take um, a lot of courage, it does take um, a lot of experimenting. So I've tried to really make it easy for people where we, you know, we go through like how to get started, we have meal plans, we have recipes, we talk about what to do when you're eating out, how to properly transition. So using, using different kind of journalings, how to keep things simple, um, there's also a big thing that I recommend is really looking at the people in your life, making sure that they're supportive of you and, and sharing with them that this is something that you may want to do. A lot of times, unfortunately, I'll see that people, um, people's efforts may be sa- sabotaged by their loved ones um, or people who, who, you know, maybe aren't the best friends that they could have. And really like really appreciating yourself and really being kind to yourself sometimes starts with letting other people in your life know that you have these boundaries and that you need their support with it. Uh, a lot of times it's as simple as saying like, hey, I would really love your support with this with this diet that I'm on. And can, can you be there for me? I would really appreciate it. And that, that works a lot of times. Other times we might have people in our lives that are, you know, some people call them vampires, right? I had one lady that shared, she had a friend who didn't believe that she was sensitive to various foods. And this quote unquote friend invited her over for dinner. 
and told her that her meal would be gluten-free and dairy-free. And as soon as the woman started eating it, she started becoming sick. And this was because the friend was quote unquote testing her. So she just snuck in a bunch of these foods in there to try to see if, if she was going to react. And I, I feel like a lot of times like that, we can, we can do, we can do without friends like that. I'll say that inflammatory foods, removing them from our lives is going to be hugely beneficial and, and removing inflammatory people can be even, even more so beneficial a lot of times. Wow. Yeah. It's unbelievable to hear those kind of stories. And I've heard those even with kids in school who had friends with peanut allergies, trying to put peanuts in their lunch, like sneak peanuts in, which I just, I can't even fathom that it's beyond me. But um, so take us through the practical side. What are some of the foods that you have found are especially beneficial for those with Hashimoto's? So I'll give you two foods that people can get started on right away in their own homes. And one of them um, is going to be green smoothies and the other one's going to be bone broth. So with green smoothies, 68% of people um, have found green smoothies to be helpful when they have thyroid conditions. So I, I should add, I did a little bit of, um, I have an outcomes research background. So I went through and the reason why I created these specific foods and recipes and meal plans is um, looking at what works for most people with Hashimoto's based on my client work, as well as later on doing some outcome research with, with a lot of my readers. 82% of people said that the smoothies gave them more energy, 60% claimed that they improved mood and 40% noticed benefits for weight. So um, one of the reasons why smoothies work so well is that they are a great way to increase nutritious food into our systems without the digestive stress. So we have all of these different foods that are going to be chopped up so they're going to be easier to digest, even if we lack digestive enzymes. And then that way that frees up some of our energy in our body. So it's not so focused on trying to digest. And then we're also going to be able to give these um, ingredients, make them much easier to absorb that way. I love to recommend green smoothies for breakfast and snacks. One big caveat is that you don't put, you know, a ton of like a ton of fruit and call it a green smoothie. So we want to look at maybe doing like one serving of fruit and the other servings, four to six servings of vegetables. So these are going to be things like carrots, avocados, celery. Um, you can add some coconut milk in there to boost up the fat. And then I also like to use um, hypoallergenic protein source such as hydrolyzed beef protein or pea protein. And you can have that first thing in the morning and later on as a snack. The other thing that is really fantastic and can be really, really easy to make is bone broth. Bone broth has collagen and nutrients to support our gut lining, our skin, and 70% of people with Hashimoto's will say that they found it beneficial. One of the really big benefits is going to be an increase in energy and increase improvement in mood as well as skin texture hair and reducing some of the joint pains that people oftentimes have. One of, one of the things I like to do is just throw in um, some chicken legs, throw in some chicken drumsticks, some celery, onion, and carrots, a little bit of apple cider vinegar, top it off with water and put that into a slow cooker or a pressure cooker and let it, you know, let it do its work. Yeah. Thank goodness for pressure cookers. They definitely simplify bone broth making for sure. I know one question we're probably going to get, so I'd rather just address it is what about cruciferous vegetables? Because I feel like they are a controversial topic for those with any kind of thyroid condition. Can those go in smoothies? Can they be eaten raw? Should they be eaten at all? What's your take on those? 
That's such a great question. And, and it's one of those things that I spent a lot of time looking into because there was all this information out there how if you had a thyroid condition, that broccoli was like the most evil thing that you could pretend, that you could possibly have in your life. And looking at all the research into goiterogens, which is really a broad term, goiterogen means something that interferes with thyroid function. And a lot of times crucifers back in the olden days were classified as goiterogens because they interfered with thyroid function in a specific way. And this was because they blocked iodine absorption to the thyroid gland. Now, what we know nowadays is that most cases of thyroid disorders are due to Hashimoto's, and this is an autoimmune attack on the thyroid gland. Back in the day, most cases of thyroid disease were caused by iodine deficiency. And so, of course, things like that would block iodine absorption into the thyroid gland could potentially make that worse, right? But now we know that most of us um, with Hashimoto's, I would say probably 90% of us are not going to be iodine deficient. And in fact, research has shown that too much iodine can actually bring on Hashimoto's. And so for most of us, foods like broccoli, foods like cauliflower, all these wonderful crucifers are going to be perfectly safe. For a small percentage of us, they may interfere with iodine absorption into the thyroid gland. And I would say those people need to be on a low-dose iodine supplement anyway. And another thing you can do is you can either ferment them or you can boil, you can boil steam, or cook the vegetables and that will break down the um, goiterogenic iodine blocking effect of them. And that would, I would say just probably about 10% of people need to do that. So, so go ahead and eat your crucifers, have your broccoli. It's excellent for detoxifying your liver. It's great for your hormones and it'll help support your thyroid as well. Okay. And even those people could just stick to like you mentioned, avocado, celery, cucumbers, things like that, non-goyogenic vegetables and smoothies and still be fine. Absolutely. Um, I will say there is if people have sulfur issues, so they have trouble breaking down sulfur foods that may come in, that may be a problem with some of these vegetables that are high in sulfur. And some people that have issues with SIBO, they may have a hard time breaking down um, some of the components. But but generally, you know, I, I would say like, you really want to look at the person as a whole, you don't want to just keep restricting more and more foods until you're down to, you know, ice chips, um, and saying, well, this reacts, this reacts, let's, let's look at the whole, let's look at the whole body. If you have iodine deficiency, then you should be taking an iodine supplement in low doses and you should be eating, adding in more foods um, that are balanced in that. If you have SIBO, then you should be addressing that. If you have sulfur issues, then you should be um, working on your detoxification systems to get rid of sulfur rather than um, eliminating more and more foods. That makes sense. What about foods to avoid? Are there any universal ones for Hashimoto's and any gray area foods? I would say the universal ones um, are going to be gluten, dairy, and soy. What I found is that a big percentage of people, so over 80% of people feel better gluten-free and dairy-free when they have Hashimoto's. And these two foods seem to be very reactive for people with Hashimoto's. And potentially there might be some cross-reactivity with um, the thyroid gland, with the gluten, with dairy. We're not quite sure how the mechanism is working. Um, but again, I would say 88% of people with Hashimoto's are going to say that they feel better on a gluten-free diet. And then 80% of people feel significantly better on a dairy-free diet. With soy, we're looking at about 63% of people feeling better, but it's, it's very remarkable in how much of a difference they see in their thyroid antibodies when they eliminate that food as well. Um, so this is generally a starting point for most people. 
And I would say long-term gluten and soy are going to be off limits. Some people are able to reintroduce dairy successfully without problems. Gotcha. Are there good substitutes for these? I know you talk about it in the cookbook, but what do you recommend? Because I know those are very much comfort foods for a lot of people. So are there substitutes that we can use instead? Yeah, of course. Depending on you know whatever types of foods are working for your body or not. Um, I like uh, for gluten, you can have rice or buckwheat as an option if you're avoiding grains. Flour is made of coconut, almonds, cassava, tapioca. Tiger nut are great options. Um, I personally really like cassava flour. Um, I find that I can use it in a lot of different baked goods. Um, and it works really, really well in, in little different types of breads and in pies. For dairy, almond milk and coconut milk are going to be two potential go-tos if, if you you know, if you're doing smoothies, if you want milk, um, these are wonderful alternatives. And they can both be made into yogurts. Cashews can be made into spreads that that are like cream cheese. I also really like to utilize, um, there's different types of cheeses like diet cheese can be utilized. Um, I try not to recommend too many processed food, but there's there's different ways to kind of meet your cravings. For proteins, I like hydrolyzed beef protein. I know um, I used to start my days with whey protein in the morning, and that that was very, very inflammatory for me because I had a whey sensitivity. Um, But you can get away with doing pea protein or hydrolyzed beef protein. Those are generally going to be hypoallergenic for a lot of people. Um, And then, you know, with soy, a lot of times this soy is a processed food, so I don't feel like we need to necessarily look for a lot of substitutes for it. Potentially, if you were doing soy milk, you can um, just utilize coconut milk and almond milk that, that will serve you just as well. Perfect. And so pretty much like any then foods not on that list, like any kinds of meats that are from clean sourcing, vegetables, fruit, those are all considered good? You know, absolutely. Depending for most people, they're able to tolerate every type of meat, um, majority of vegetables, and then um, majority of fruit. And a lot of times, you know, I would say people usually have one primary food sensitivity or maybe two or three primary food sensitivities at max. And once we do a lot of these healing and restoring, we're going to be able to add in a lot of these foods back. So for for short term, I might recommend a diet like the autoimmune paleo diet or the paleo diet with the goal of eventually reintroducing a lot of the different foods back. And the Hashimoto's Food Pharmacology Cookbook actually has three different types of template protocols. They're based on uh, the intro diet, which is gluten-free, dairy-free, and soy-free. And then we have the paleo type protocol, and then we have the more autoimmune paleo type protocol. And it's really meant for people to go back and forth between these protocols, depending on what they need, where they need to um, start off. Sometimes they may want to start off with more of their restrictive diet and work their way back up to more and more foods. Sometimes they may start off with just the intro diet and remove more foods to see where where their healing is. Um, my goal for the cookbook was that it had a ton of different recipes that could be modified back and forth. So you don't have to be like, oh no, now I'm paleo. No, I have to buy 17 cookbooks for that. I mean, you still can and you still should if that's what you enjoy. But the book is really meant to support a person throughout their entire healing journey. Gotcha. And that was my experience as well. I know early on for me, um, certain foods, I, I can now add dairy back in and I do fine with that. But da- all dairy was out at first for me as well as some random ones like green beans and eggs, which I know can be reactive for a lot of people with Hashimoto's, at least in that initial inflammatory phase as well. 
This episode is sponsored by Just Thrive Probiotics. I found this company when searching for the most research-backed and effective probiotic available, and I was blown away at the difference I found in their products. They offer two cornerstone products that are both clinically studied and highly effective. The first is their probiotic, which has been studied to help with leaky gut and to survive up to 1,000 times as much as other probiotics or as the beneficial organisms in something like Greek yogurt, for instance. The difference is their spore-based strains work completely differently than other types of probiotics. Their probiotic is vegan, dairy-free, histamine-free, non-GMO, and is made without soy, dairy, sugar, salt, corn, tree nuts, or gluten. So it's safe for practically everyone. I even sprinkle it in my kids' food or bake it into products because it can survive at really high temperatures. Their probiotic contains a patented strain called Bacillus indicus HU36, which produces antioxidants in the digestive system where they can be easily absorbed by the body. Their other product is a K2-7, and this is a nutrient you may have heard of. It's known as Activator X, a super nutrient that Weston A. Price, a dentist known primarily for his theories on the relationship between nutrition, good health, bone development, and oral health. He found that this is prevalent in foods in the healthiest communities in the world. The K2 from Just Thrive is the only pharmaceutical grade, all natural supplement with published safety studies. Like the probiotic, it is also gluten, dairy, soy, nut, and GMO free, and best are both taken with food. So I keep both on my kitchen table. Here's a tip too. My dad has trouble remembering to take supplements. So he actually taped these to his pepper shaker because he uses that at practically every meal. And now they're on his daily supplement list as well. You can check out all the products and learn more by going to thriveprobiotic.com forward slash wellness mama and using the code wellness mama 15 to save 15%. So again, that's thrive probiotic, T H R I V E P R O B I O T I C dot com forward slash wellness mama and the code wellness mama 15 to save 15%. This podcast is brought to you by the best CBD I have ever tried, and the one that I feel is truly the best out there. It's called Ojai Energetics, spelt O-J-A-I, Energetics, and here's why it's awesome. First of all, it is over 20 times more absorbable than most CBD, which makes it an incredible value. Over 99% of Ojai CBD gets where it needs to go in your body because of their patented colloidal technology, which is not liposomal, like 90% of the CBD on the market. And in fact, 90% of the CBD in these liposomal oils don't even make it past the gut and liver and into the blood. This is called the first pass effect. Then 90% of the CBD that does make it through isn't in the right form to be available to the cells that need it. Ojai solves this problem with their colloidal system. I was skeptical and I have to tell you the first time I tried it, I felt a noticeable, like very noticeable effect in about 15 seconds, which is so much faster than the 20 to 30 minutes with other brands I've used. So now whenever I feel any stress or anxiety or have trouble sleeping, I use it and solve that problem in under 20 seconds. Their CBD is derived from completely organic ingredients and it's batch tested by third-party vendors, which is important for heavy metals, VOCs, pesticides, herbicides, microbes, and to verify the content of terpenes and cannabinoids. Because this version absorbs faster, you can also know if you're getting the right dose because taking too much CBD is not a good thing either. Here's how. Because Ojai works so rapidly, it causes your body's cannabinoid receptors in the tongue to modulate. 
big words, but what this means is that the CBD will taste bitter when your body needs more CBD, but will change to sweet when you've had enough. So to test it, all you have to do is take only a quarter of a dropper, wait 30 seconds, and then feel on your tongue if you taste bitter or sweet. If it tastes bitter, you just repeat until you get a sweet, almost honey-like taste. Ojai is also a certified B Corp, which means they operate their servers off of wind power. They use completely recyclable packaging. They work to build direct relationships with the farmers who grow the ingredients they use, which ensures fair trade wages, and they support regenerative farming practices. Find out more about them and their mission and get a special gift with your order by going to ojaienergetics.com forward slash wellness mama. So again, O-J-A-I energetics.com forward slash wellness mama. I'd love to, for you to weigh in a little bit more on fruit because I feel like it's gotten a bad rap lately, especially with keto diets on board now and even within some realms of paleo and people are avoiding fruit. What do you think about fruit in its whole form, unsweetened, just natural fruit? I love fruit. I think fruit is fantastic. It's it's delicious. It's It's like nature's dessert. In some cases, People, when their initial healing journeys, when they have a lot of blood sugar issues, they may need to limit fruit. So they might have to have one to two servings a day because of the blood sugar issues. Once we get all of our nutrients addressed, though, for example, thiamine can help with tolerating fruit better. Um, and once once we're eating more of a healthy, healthy is a, is a tricky word, but more of a whole foods diet where we're getting plenty of those fats and proteins into our system, we're going to become more balanced. And at that point, we won't need to restrict fruit. I, I really think um, a lot of what we need to do with nutrition is come back into balance and get our bodies into more of a resilient state. And that's what I hope to do with this with this Hashimoto's food pharmacology is to teach people how to how to use food as medicine and, and follow their own body's intuition and into what works best for them. So sometimes they may benefit from eating a lot more fruit, like in the summers or when they're dehydrated. And other times they may benefit from limiting their fruit, such in times like the winters or when their blood sugar is is running all over the place. And and I guess I guess my answer is it depends on the person, right? And depends on where you are on your healing journey. I love that reminder though that you know, this is not a normal state that we can recover from a lot of this. And if we like stay within the boundaries that our body's giving us and figure out what works for us, most of us are able to regain most foods. And to, I love that you said resilient because um, I think so often it's easy to focus on the disease and to become fixated on that. But truly we should be focused on the health side and moving toward health versus just being stuck in disease. And one thing that really struck me about your new book is that it's so versatile and the recipes are amazing. And it's, I think it's often, um, you know, when you think you're going into a restrictive diet for a specific health condition, people often anticipate like a pretty bland, um, very basic diet. And it's not like that at all. So can you just give us a few examples of recipes that in the book that you loved or that your family specifically loves? Sure. So a lot of the recipes are going to be based on um, a lot of a lot of my culture. So I'm from Poland. There's going to be a lot of traditional Polish fare in there. So a lot of the recipes that I think are going to be new to people in the paleo world, such as stuffed cabbage rolls. Um, these can be actually made, they're naturally going to be gluten-free, but you can also make them paleo when you use rice cauliflower instead of rice. Um, there's going to be a, a hunter stew recipe that includes basically everything you have in your kitchen and you slow cook and it's quite delicious. 
I have lots of pies that were modified to be even autoimmune friendly that were coming from my Polish culture. And a lot of the different foods I have, I, I try to really make them straightforward and easy. So 80% of the recipes can be made on a weeknight. Um, a lot of them are pressure cooker and slow cooker recipes that you don't have to spend you know, your entire life in the kitchen cooking up. And then I've got about 20% recipes that are going to be like more fancy for dinner parties or for the weekends if you if you want to if you know if you want to follow multiple steps and if you enjoy that kind of thing there's there's going to be some fun for you to experiment with there. I have a lot of different types of cuisines that I personally like. So we've got Mexican inspirations, we've got Italian inspirations, we've got Thai inspiration as well as some of that Eastern European. So I think there's going to be something that just about everybody can find in the book to suit their needs, whether that's going to be a shepherd's pie that's made paleo, whether that's going to be a special kind of hash. My hubby has made some killer carnitas that are going to be paleo and gluten-free that most people seem to really, really enjoy, especially, especially me. And, you know, I really, I really hope that people enjoy these recipes. I, I feel like we've spent a lot of times eating the same things over and over again. And we don't realize that just because we're not eating gluten, dairy and soy that we can eat very, just a very, very tasty diet. And a lot of it is pulling on various types of cultures. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of foods from around the world as well. I'd love also just to quickly get your take on two foods that seem kind of like semi-controversial and gray area in most of these types of diets, which are potatoes and corn. So you mentioned shepherd's pie, and I know there's ways to make it without potatoes, but I'm curious um, what your thoughts are for people who are not sensitive to those foods. So shepherd's pie that we have the recipes for, we actually use sweet potatoes, or we can use the white sweet potatoes as well that give more of a flavor um, closer to regular potatoes. And I think initially, for most people, potatoes are going to be fine. But there are some people that have nightshade sensitivities where potatoes may be reactive. And then also people with severe blood sugar issues, they may need to restrict some of their potatoes initially. I know um, they're kind of controversial in the paleo world, right? Um, because they can be you know, are, are they paleo? Are they not paleo, right? Um, and a lot of times we'll see that people in the initial stages of healing may need to eliminate them. And then as they heal their guts more and heal their bodies, they're going to be able to reintroduce them back in. Corn is another interesting food. Um, one of the challenges with corn is that is that it's going to be genetically modified. So if you are going to be looking for corn, make sure you eat the organic kind. The other issue is going to be that it's very high in in sugar. And so we might have problems with it if we have blood sugar issues. And then another thing is the proteins in corn, unfortunately, are going to be reactive for, for some people. So corn is going to be one of the top foods, one of the top grains that's going to be reactive for people with Hashimoto's. Um, a lot of times we'll say let's eliminate it if we haven't gotten uh, the results that we need with the intro diet. Let's try to eliminate corn and some grains to see if that gets rid of additional symptoms. It is something that can be reintroduced back. I know I used to um, have a lot of problems with corn. I would look, you know, 18 months pregnant whenever I had just like a corn chip. And eventually, um, you know, I was able to introduce that without any kind of issues now where I can, where, of course, I'll always choose the organic kind, but I can eat corn without any issues now. So I hope, I hope that answers the, the questions that, you know, your listeners might have. And I just, 
you know, I, I apologize if it sounds a little bit confusing. And that, that's really why I wrote the book is to help you figure out what, what's going to be right for you, where we go through different types of symptom assessments. Like, for example, if you have joint pain, a lot of times this may be related to corn, or this may be related to potatoes and other types of nightshades. So you'll know based on your symptoms and how to modify things for yourself. We're speaking to the general person, you know, you don't want to necessarily eat the the diet that everybody eats. You want to eat the diet that's right for you. Yeah, I think above all, that's such an important point. And I think books like yours and your work are really helping to raise awareness about that and not just raise awareness, but also give people the tools to figure out what that actually looks like. And you go deep on, you know, individualization and figuring out your own body and all the nutrients we talked about. And I think that's so key. I know firsthand how well it works because I went through your first book um, and your previous book, and I've gone through all of these books and, and seen the changes in my own life. So I definitely would encourage people to check it out, especially if anyone's feeling like I was in those early stages of just in that kind of brain fog and kind of helplessness of not knowing what to do next. And between finding your work and our mutual friend, Dr. Alan Christensen, it was totally life-changing for me. So I appreciate so much what you do. And one question I love to ask toward the end of interviews, um, my recommendation before I ask you for a book that's changed my life is your new cookbook because it is so good. Um, But I'd love to hear if there is a book or books that have been really influential in your life as a whole and why. One of the books that was really influential um, was The Body Ecology Diet by Donna Gates. So this was a book that came out uh, many decades ago, and now it's in its updated version. And it just really goes through focusing on the health of your gut to restore the health of your body and using food as medicine and nutrition. And that's that's been one of the books that's really inspired a lot of my my work. It's helped it's helped me tremendously in my own healing journey. And I'm just so grateful that I can help others, especially especially wonderful to hear that I've been able to help you on your healing journey as well. It's such an honor. Oh, thank you. And lastly, if there is a single piece of advice that you could spread far and wide, what would it be and why? One of the really big pieces of advice I would just say to, you know, women and men listening is really trust yourself and trust your body, trust your intuition. A lot of times your body will tell you things that your doctor might not, a book might not, and trying to tune in and listening to to what your own inner wisdom is saying is going to be such a key component to healing, to um, becoming the truest, most happiest version of yourself. You know, I, I really do hope I can do that with food pharmacology by giving you some of the tools and some of the, the ways to interpret your body's subtle messages. And I hope that you continue to do that and continue to work on tuning into yourself. I, I really think that's, that's where a lot of our, our wisdom and healing and power comes from. Mm, so beautiful and so important. And um, there will be links in the show notes for all of you listening at wellnessmama.fm. So everything we've talked about, um, Isabella's books and some supporting blog articles from both of our sites about some of these topics. Make sure to check those out. Don't worry about writing them down if you're jogging or driving. Just check out the show notes, wellnessmama.fm. And Isabella, thank you as always. This I can't believe our time has flown by already. I could talk to you all day long. And I know that we can now also talk about motherhood since you have a sweet new baby and um, would love to do it again sometime soon. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for your work and your friendship. I appreciate everything you do. And thank you to all of you for listening and sharing your most valuable asset of your time with us. We're very grateful for you and that you chose to do that. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? 
Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.